Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and I'm enjoying the Altered Carbon TV series. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I'm enjoying the Knives Out movies. Professional development requires ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Saturday discussing education research and drinking beer. Today, we are drinking Scoville Imperial Stout from Crooked Stave. One thing to note about this, I think it's noteworthy, is that the can rings that keep the this package, this four pack of cans together, are cardboard. They're not plastic. They're not other plastic. They're cardboard. And that, I, that, I just find that charming. So, a spicy cinnamon Imperial Stout. Let's see how it goes. And my expectation is that it is not spicy. They describe it as being um, more sweet than like the pepper flavors rather than the, just the spice. We'll see how truthful that ends up being. My my mug is completely black as night. This beer is, is motor oil in terms of its appearance. Uh, and the head... Minimal. I didn't get very much pouring it. I got a little bit and it was delicious. So, what are we doing today, Dr. Ralph? This month, we look at professional development. A fresh framework for PD lays out how we need to consider teacher learning in context, with definite answers for the for whom and when when discussing whether something works. Later, we look at norms for co-teaching by examining the role of a mentor teacher while a student teacher works with students. How should the mentor engage or intervene during a lesson? Let's get started. For our first segment, we read Framing an Ecological Perspective on Teacher Professional Development. This was written by Nadav Ehrenfeld. Published in Educational Researcher in 2022, and a shout out and thank you to Dr. Ehrenfeld for providing a copy of the paper for us to read. January is the hardest month for me to cue content for this show. Because if you go on our website and you look at our criteria for how I judge papers in deciding whether or not to include them as a segment, recency is an important consideration for me. We want to read stuff that's recently coming out to give us a better opportunity to provide content that perhaps you all haven't heard before. And I interpret those recency rules, which are in the last 24 months, and then I interpret the rules that I wrote even more stringently than they are posted on the website. And my goal is to only read things that have a posted year of either the current year or the previous year. So in January, I, in my head, generally disqualify everything from 2021. And so I have 13 months of papers that I can pull from for January episodes. Uh, and so I was actually, I, I went through a pretty good amount of my research aggregator tools that I use to bring papers to my attention. And I had to sift through quite a bit of my material to find things I thought would be compelling for segments. And when we hit upon this one, the contextual nature of professional development uh, struck a chord with me because 
our you know super duper episode last month was all about classroom recommendations and suggestions for practice. And so I felt like this was a good opportunity to kind of give this episode a soft theme of how should we be thinking about professional development since last month was so heavy on professional development content, if you will. So this paper is, um, it uses some case study or some some narrative data that came out of a, you know, a larger project that I understand this author is involved with. Uh, but really, it's sort of an argument. This is more of an essay about how researchers and people who work with teachers for professional learning should think about the way that we do professional learning. There's this general idea that contextualized, you know, applied, collaborative teacher learning is valuable. And I don't think that this essay is arguing against that necessarily. But what he does want to call out is the importance of considering the different ways that actual teacher learning plays out in classrooms and how that very often is disconnected from the way research or professional development providers might think about professional development um, so that they can be more effective in helping teachers learn and grow. I don't know. I'm just going to say it. I'm just going to say it. This is not new. This is just looking at things that we have known about classrooms and students and just saying them again for teachers. Um, friend of the show, Dr. Shannon Ralph, a million years ago in one of our episodes, as her keystone habit said that we must know our students. And really what this is, this paper is saying that if you want your professional development to be effective, you're going to kind of have to know your students. And in this case, you're going to have to know your teachers. Uh, where are they working? What are they doing in their job? Who, who are their students that they're meeting the needs for? Because what you present to them is going to have a different degrees of value and utility based on who they are and what their needs are and what their background is and what their institutional constraints are and what their expectations are and what their, their administrator's expectations of them are. Just like when a student walks into your classroom, they're coming in with a prior set of experience and a prior set of knowledge and they have family constraints and they have uh, time constraints and they have different priorities. And what you're giving to them in the classroom is going to be interpreted and valued at different rates because they are different people as well. If we continuing to believe that I, I made a great professional development session, they came, they sat down, they did the pen and paper activity, they talked with, they did think, pair, share, and talk to their people. They asked questions. End of session. I did wonderful. They're going to go out and change the world with their new information. That's about as reasonable as saying, my kids came to class, they sat down, I told them about, um, I told them about a pH scale, and then they left, and now they're going to know everything about acids and bases. Some of them might. Some of them. We're going to be really excited about that. Uh, but are, have you changed their schemas? Are they going to be able to make predictions about acids and bases in the futures because of that? Um, we, If we want them to process this in a meaningful way, it's going to have to be contextualized within a circumstance that is meaningful to them. And we can't do that if we don't know our students. And PD are kind of taking a shot in the dark if they do that without knowing their teachers. I would imagine, and I, I didn't ask, um, I didn't ask the author, but I would, I think that throughout this paper they reference frequently um, the considerations of researchers working on professional development, and so really I think his intended audience 
was researchers who perhaps walk into a context that they don't fully understand and they don't fully account for. And so when they have professional development that works or does not work, they ascribe all of the meaning to the internal content of what they did rather than looking at the broader context that might be more important for explaining why something did or did not work. Uh, I think about one example that this framework that he's laid out has three major um, tenants, three major you know categories. And the first one that I think was the most um, concrete for me was scope. What is the scope of the professional learning that you're that you're working on? And so there's a really good figure that kind of lays out how that the the Bronfenbrenner stuff actually fits in because it features prominently. And I think an example in my head is let's imagine I create this really compelling professional development workshop. And I'm going to go in on a given you know PD day and work with the whole faculty, and it's going to be just amazing. It's the best thing ever. It's it's the idyllic Platonic perfect version of professional development and every teacher makes infinite gains in their practice with relation to a particular, um, you know, a particular piece of their pedagogy. And if I never consider the realities of their moment to moment teaching between the bells during class, what's happening in their classroom at 837 on Monday morning, if I don't attend to the realities of what that does or does not look like, I might overlook the fact that there is some structural reason that is undermining their ability to do that specific skill that I spent all day teaching in that professional development workshop. And so that that implementation might fail. And I would mistake I could mistakenly believe that if I just did a better job teaching it on Friday, it would show up on Monday. And what I think this framework is equipping us to say with clear words is that if we're looking at an impact, we need to understand what we are looking at. And I think even more importantly, we need to be able to articulate what we did not look at. Because I think that I think the author was very clear in saying, this is not a call for everybody to think about everything all the time. That's nonsense and that's not what I'm saying. It's not what he's saying. It's not what any of us are saying. Instead, it's about being clear for, hey, we took some feedback and we collected some data on how well the workshop went. I have no earthly idea what was happening in the classroom on Monday. So when you consider how well this did or did not work, you should know that if there is some reason that things happening on Monday are undermining its ability to work, that's something you should look into. The tenets of the framework are independently useful. Progress is not linear for our students and for, or any other professional. You, you, you make great strides and improve your practice and then you make a mistake and you, you're like, oh, shucks, man, that, that didn't go well. And then you continue to improve your practice. So you got updates and you got down days and you remember things and you forget things and our students do the same way. Um, learning is done by taking the lessons and being able to connect them to other contexts so that the information is reliable and useful in, in a multifaceted way. That's what this interconnectedness component is about. That's true of teaching as well as any other lesson you want your kids to learn. Um, and context matters. If something, if you have made, you have, you may have crafted the best freaking constructivist lesson in the world, but if there was a disaster in the community this last weekend, it's probably not going to fly. Right. And so if you put blinders on to this is what I've planned and this is what we're going to do without recognizing that you 
I, I do like the, the, I'm a biologist, so I do like the imagery of ecosystem, that you are in an ecosystem where there are inputs and outputs and there are systems and cascades and there are, there's response to stimuli. And if the stimuli is changed or there's a cascading effect in your environment, your school, your neighborhood, your city, uh, just your classroom, recognize that's going to have effect for whatever your plans are. So you got to be dynamic. And we have to do that for our teachers and let them have that time uh, to recognize that the things we plan for teaching our teachers is going to be interpreted through whatever lens they're seeing at that time. I also really loved the ecology imagery. In fact, my primary note for the third tenant of this three tenant framework, which is temporality. I don't know. I've ever heard anybody, any expert say that word out loud. So I don't know if that's how you say it. I don't know either, but it sounds like a great fantasy spell. Yeah. Tip. Temporality or temporality? I'm going with temporality. The the idea of timeliness. Where where when does does this learning happen? And the author evoked this um, forest fire imagery that I just it really resonated with me. It really landed um, because it's this idea that as we're developing our practice and you have these different things that you're doing, these different instructional techniques that that are well practiced and that are salient to you, and you have your plans, and then you have a you have a growth goal. You have a particular direction that you want to go, that you want to get better, or you want to see some improvement. Uh, in the vignette that they used in this paper. It was a teacher observing that uh, they didn't have as much student participation in their group conversations as they wanted to have as an area of, of uh, an opportunity for growth. I want to I do better in that area. What can I do? What should I change in my practice? And what I loved was the building to the forest fire moments in this forest, when you have all your practices kind of fit together in a certain way. And, and I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do that. And it prompts me to think about this thing. And all of it is kind of this big puzzle that is more or less full up at some points in our practice. But then when you have an area for growth and you make a decision that you want to change this thing, but if you change that piece, then these other three pieces maybe need to get remodeled also. You know what? That actually makes me rethink this other thing that I do over here. And that actually, maybe I should re rewrite my syllabus because I can bring up these other couple. And it's like this great fire that just burns down like huge swaths of our practice. And it resonates with me because I have a particular moment in my own career when I had that forest fire moment. And I likened it to burning boats, but it works just as well for burning in a forest as you have these enormous swaths of practice that go up for revision. And it's this moment of disequilibrium is like, what should I, what can I be? What could I do? And then you have this exploratory opportunity to make new choices. And some of those old practices are going to come back. Like, yeah, that was really effective. I'm going to use it again. And it's going to be in a slightly different place or a slightly different way. But yeah, that's still a really great staple of what I'm doing. But then there are these new opportunities, these new colonizing species that see an opportunity. I could I could do this new thing over here and that could fit into this spot. And then that raises an opportunity for this another practice over here. And that give and take of the burning and then the regrowth, I think is a really good thing to recognize as we think about where we are in any given moment working in the direction of professional growth is I need to recognize where I'm at and where the other teachers in the room are at. Because if I'm right before a forest fire moment and somebody else suggests to me a new practice, I'm not in a place to put that new practice anywhere because I haven't made space yet. That's not where I am. And so instead, perhaps what I need help with is identifying where does that fire need to start? 
What is the opportunity to start that, that breaking down process to make space for new practices? And so if you give me just one new tree, well, biologists, what happens if I go throw one seed into the middle of a mature forest? That seed does not grow to maturity because there's no sunlight. There's no space for it. And so that analogy really resonated with me. And I think just reinforces the importance of if you're doing professional development events, formative assessment remains a key practice, just like it is in a classroom. But even if you're working together in a PLC setting, recognizing where you are and where your colleagues are can help you identify what the most useful resources might be. Perhaps you don't need to go find a brand new resource a brand new practice when what you really need is support to be reflecting on what you're doing to identify the new area of growth. If you want to make really effective PD for, you've got to do it for the ecosystem. You've got to do it. Like there's one thing to say, to have a large call to say, everybody who loves project-based learning, come on down. And you can have a big old project-based learning love in. And everybody who takes that, they go to the three-day conference and they take your session and you're, you're preaching to the choir because you're asking the choir to show up and they all show up and everyone feels great. And you pat yourself on your back and you reinforce your understanding of professional base of, of project-based learning. And you go home and you, you dig in, you sharpen that tool because it's the one that you love and project-based learning gets better good for y'all but that's not really where conceptual change comes from that's sharpening a tool that's already your favorite and that's there's value for that um but if you want to like shake up some practice you might need you you would be empowered that's what i would say you don't need to do anything but you would be empowered to spend some time studying that e ecosystem this doesn't directly follow, but there's a there's a quote that's in this same section that I really loved. I liked it enough to write it down, uh, like in my notes, uh, where the the author and I suspect this may come from a cited paper because it has a citation right after. But they said teacher learning is unpredictable but highly patterned. I really liked that phrase. Well, it's like, true for students. It's true yeah. for it's true for learning. Yeah, yeah, just learning. You, yeah, you, <laughs> yeah. Can, you can drop the first word. Yeah, it's true for learning. Uh, so if you assume that not just, like, they were thinking about it in terms of a teacher's professional practice, and then you use the sort of succession, the succession tiers, right? Uh, they were... Um, they were release, which is the fire. There's got to be a change. Reorganization. How are we going to change? Growth. Okay, we're attempting to implement and fine tune the change. And then we stabilize, which they called conservation. And it's it's sort of a, it's a it's an equal ec ecological equilibrium model. Like when you're stable, you're like, I have a practice. This is what I do. I enjoy what I do. I feel effective at what I do. Students gain uh they see growth. I, I'm succeeding. And so that's from a, a, but then I see something that needs to change. I'm unhappy. What I'm doing must change. How am I going to do that? Oh, let's try this. Now I've got to find tweak that. Oh, that's working out. New stability. So new ecological equilibrium in my practice. But when we start thinking about the school as an ecosystem, and we start thinking about practices of the school, I think we have heard time and I, I don't think it's new, right? There have been so many, like, here's a disciplinary system that we've had incredible, we've had incredible success with. It was a school-wide initiative and we saw a bunch of change together and you should all be doing this. 
I think that happens. That that gets sold, and there's we could name a litany of disciplinary systems like the Boys Town method and the this that or the other that that has happened. We should try, you know, um, Mastery Connect revolutionized the school district, and and uh, this this is going to change the nature of, of of students checking into and out of class forever. This product or that product or this system or that system, and. It's really important to recognize the ecological facet of attempting these new systems. If you are in a, a, a school where one teacher is observing a problem and they implement and they try a new solution and another teacher sees that and says, hey, man, that's really great. I'm going to try that. And then it spreads through that school, that new that new approach is like an invasive species that is outcompeting everything that is there. It spreads through the school. The school has this common purpose. They find the value in it, and then it is amazing. But, and as much as we talk about invasive species and ecosystem, there are plenty of times when a new species goes to a new ecosystem and immediately dies. And we don't tell those stories because there aren't any stories. That's not a story. It just can't survive there. And so you could, if you get... If you're not looking at an ecological level and you hear this amazing story, dare I say it, you could be bamboozled into purchasing contracts for hundreds of thousands of dollars for things that have this amazing story of success in one, in one high altitude, arid, low moisture environment. And then here you are in the Florida lowlands trying to sell the same product and it doesn't purchase these teachers don't buy into it. It doesn't solve any of their actual problems. They don't see a value for it, and it doesn't doesn't make any change at all. Uh, and that is making a PD to system at a systemic level while ignoring the ecosystems you're trying to improve, and that is folly. So if if you if you're not accounting for ecosystems, you can make huge mistakes. Empower each other. For our second segment, we read Stepping In or Stepping On, Mentor Teachers' Preferences for Mentoring Inside and Outside of Interactive Teaching. This was written by Sarah Schneider-Cavanaugh, Sharon Feynman-Nemser, Karen Hammerness, Kavita Kapadia-Matsko, and Jamie Wallace. This was published in the Journal of Teacher Education in 2022. What was appealing to me about this paper, and the reason that I cued it, was looking at the relationship between veteran or experienced teachers and novice, in this case student teachers, and the way that they interact in front of students um, resonated with me because I worked in teacher prep for a little while. And so this was a really salient problem in how we engage in modeling and how I facilitated work with mentor teachers. And I think in general, even thinking about the relationship that you and I had a number of years ago when we were in each other's classrooms, uh, or even I said to my wife today after reading this paper and we were parenting our children and 
there was a moment where I even pointed out, I was like, you know what? We read this paper about mentorship interactions, and it even made me think about the decisions you and I make about whether to engage when the other person is parenting. What does the co-parent do, and how do we interact when we're in front of our children? So there's a lot of instances where somebody is engaged in a practice. It's a mentorship or an instructional practice. And what does somebody else do? Whether or not they have more or less experience, what does a second or a third party in that triangle of relationships do to facilitate improving practice when we also have this very important consideration of the experience of a learner, of a fundamental learner? And that just, that that appealed to me. That was interesting to me. So, um, so I cued this paper and I want to do a shout out and thank you again to Dr. Schneider Kavanaugh for providing this paper for our reading. So they started out with just kind of a little soft uh, description of the research base. We have a lot out there about shoulds and shouldn'ts for teachers. We have a fair amount for professional developments. We don't have that much out there for what should cooperating teachers do when they are hosting a student teacher. There's, there's a little bit, but there's not a ton. And specifically, the, the paucity, to use Spencer Martin's favorite word, is about what should happen while students are in the room. That most of the scholarship that does exist around mentor-teacher and um, apprentice-teacher relationships is about what's happening when students are not around. What kind of prep do we do? What kind of debrief do we do? What kind of reflection should we have? But the research on... How should mentor teachers go about mentoring while instruction is happening with students is pretty poorly understood. And this paper did not try to answer that question. This paper, its goal was to really ask, hey, what do cooperating teachers feel about stuff? Yeah, I liked the organization of the paper. I actually um, found some of their headings I enjoyed their headings. I actually enjoyed their headings. You don't hear people commenting on paper headings. Yeah, very often. and and these aren't like these aren't like uh, this is these aren't paradigm shifting headings either. But um, when they got to the the findings and they said mentoring practices that m- mentors value, mentoring practices that mentors reject, and mentoring practices that are valued, but not done. Like the headings really get to the heart of the situation. And that I found to be good writing and good organization. And I really appreciated that. Recognizing my own positionality, I've hosted four student teachers when I was in the classroom. And so this is something that even, even though four is not a tremendous number, it is important to me. Thinking about the role of mentoring an early career teacher, it was one of my favorite experiences as a classroom teacher. Their question was, what, what, do, what do we currently know? What currently goes on? And I'm saying this from my heart. Those norms are pretty strongly crystallized. There's not very many questions. Like there is a defined set of norms for how mentor teachers should go about hosting a student teacher. I would challenge your use of the word should. I think there are norms for how they do it. And how we societally communicate that somebody who is new should be doing it, which is not the same thing as this is a best practice or a contextually effective practice. Right, 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 right. Okay, so like uh, what is culturally accepted, which is culturally normative. An expected practice? Expected, expected. Let's go with expected. Good for you. Yeah, so um, 
So yeah, so I challenge your use of should. I I support. I su- I suggest replacing it with expected. There are are and they're like I experienced them as you experienced them as I observed you enacting them. Uh, so as I hear other people enact them, and even though um, I have never been a cooperating teacher hosting a student teacher, I have been a building mentor. And even our relationship, when I was in that person's classroom observing them teaching, honored those expectations. I met those expectations as as an observing teacher. So it's pretty... That culture, crystallized is the right word. It's It's... Self-perpetuating. And let's speak directly to it. I'm going to jump out and, and put the headline first. This this attitude is one of non-interference. Having read this paper, I even like, they had me on board early on. Like, I, I like their arguments. I like their perspective. It's well justified. I want to agree with them. Mm, I'm not sure what to do. Because I also, I still feel this non-interference deeply embedded in me. And so I, I'm, I'm not, I'm still not sure what I would do in a classroom with a student teacher right now. And so the, what they're talking about is describing how this, this perception or this expectation, this manifestation of non-interference looks with mentor teachers, how they talk about it. And perhaps even I think some of their, some of their data helps us define the boundaries of what it is and what it is not. So we can talk about if there is a need for change. If you're an experienced teacher and you've had the opportunity to be in an effective co-teaching environment, you know, it is amazing. I got to co-teach Avid last year before I'm now solo teaching it with an experienced Avid instructor. Uh, it was my 10th year of teaching, so I was not a novice teacher, but I was new to the Avid experience. And I got to co-teach with an Avid teacher last year, and it was amazing. And I loved it. And it was incredible. And it was the one of the best teaching experiences of my 10-year career to to look forward to being in that classroom with another teacher every day, working with the same kids together. It was amazing. Co-teaching is awesome. But you need to train how you fight. Whether you're a boxer or a, 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 or, or a track athlete or a martial artist, you need to train how you fight. And there is a for the second time in the episode, paucity of co-teaching in this industry. So, ultimately, co-teaching with a novice teacher is better for everyone. But that novice teacher is unlikely to be experiencing co-teaching in their career, so we feel the pressure to give them the authentic train how you fight experience, which is non-interference. And that I, I agree. And one of the notes that I made was a, a recurrent theme from the mentor teachers who were talking about a desire to not interfere with the perception of authority or autonomy for the student teacher in front of the students. And I can reiterate that from my own experience 
of if I'm setting up a teacher who's going to be the primary teacher of a classroom for most of a semester, and I set up a power dynamic where they do things, but the students can always be looking at me and if because they know that if something's really messed up, I'm going to step in. And so they get to sort of like quality check on a moment to moment basis with what's happening with me. That's a problem. Like that, that's a fundamental problem with the dynamic in the classroom. And so what I was sort of inferring out a lot of the material in this paper is what are some practices that two teachers in a room, a student teacher and a mentor teacher, or any two teachers for that matter, what can you set up so that you can have give and take and give and take in such a way that facilitates a novice teacher to identify more information in the interactions because that was something that came out from this study was novice teachers are very often, they're not able to extract all the same information from what they're seeing unassisted. So like I can, let us imagine I'm an amazing teacher and I do a great lesson and a novice teacher watches me teach. They won't be able to identify any of the great things that I'm doing if in we imagine that I'm doing them. And so they need structure to help them interpret and extract information from the event. So let's imagine that we can set up a a situation in the classroom where we can be having give and take and a mentor teacher can have moments be like, hey, did you see that? That was a, I made a choice there. Did you notice that choice? Or, hey, a student over there is doing that thing and I chose to not engage with it. Did you notice that I skipped that thing? Like they so that I can foreground things for their consideration, but do it in such a way that I don't create a hierarchy in the room that then subordinates the student teacher and undermines their experience of making primary instructor decisions, which I agree is critical for the success of their experience. And that's a tough tension. Like I'm, I'm still sitting with that because I don't have all the answers on it. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm wrestling with it, but I think it's, it's at the crux of what came out of this. So they uh, they had 27 cooperating teachers, and they essentially discussed vignettes with the teacher and asked them, hey, do you, did you like this? Do you agree? Do you do this? Or do you disagree? Do you not like this? Do you not do this? Uh, and that was essentially what they asked them to do. And they, they found that um, there were there were patterns. All of the stuff that were involved coaching outside of, of instructional time was approved. We, as, as cooperating teachers, we like helping to debrief and prepare our, our novice teachers. We like to debrief, hey, what happened? Let's talk about what happened. Let's talk about the choices. Let's talk about alternatives. We like to help them prepare. Let's plan together. Let's look forward to the future together. Let's grade together. Let's let's do a bunch of stuff together outside of instruction. We like it and we do it. Yes. It currently happens. Yeah, we are doing all those things. Then when there were vignettes that they were asked to judge involving uh, uh, 
interference or co-action, like you got students and I'm going to step in and I'm also going to act like you're interacting with the students and I'm going to, I'm going to erase some things on the board and write some new things on the board while that's happening. No, I don't want to take authority away from that teacher and their relationship to the board of the students. We're not going to do those things. We're not, while they, while they're with the kids, we are not going to do things. If I read the paper correctly, the authors are suggesting that co-action is probably a superior model. I want, I want to build a classroom where catching and correcting mistakes is the default norm so that a student could see that happening and all just breathe a sigh of relief that somebody corrected that mistake publicly. Thank goodness that that happened. Recall the actual structure of the interview is they read two vignettes that were generally this narrative and then asked the teachers if they thought it was a good idea. So the context is available, at least to the same extent that the teachers who made the responses are available. You can read it in table two, table two. Uh, The details matter. So that was one of the things that like was a really big takeaway from this paper for me was these two papers talk to each other. They really talk to each other. What we talked about in the first segment, the ecological nature of how professional development manifests and student teaching, mentor teaching is professional development. And that is a big deal in the way that I think about student teacher, mentor teaching or resident teaching or any of these other sort of support models. They are fundamentally about professional development. That's what they're for. So our previous segment applies here. So as you said, the details of why is somebody erasing what's on the board matters. But I think that it also explains the majority of the time why I would not erase something that's on the board. And there are there's a non-zero number of examples of when I've done that, when I was a mentor teacher. When something is wrong, like outright inconsistent with the science, yeah, that's not that's not that that's actually a that's a that's a positive relationship, not a negative relationship. That that that's not that's that didn't re- replicate that's not real like that that's happened a couple of times not very often but a couple of times what's important and what i think is present in a lot of what their narrative is that they presented is the difficulty is in drawing the line if you do correct what's on the board how much do you correct what's on the board and i think the reality of the humanity of the mentor teachers makes that a very difficult line to walk like you put something factually wrong, I'm going to correct it. Okay, that's all right. Fair enough. You highlighted some studies that are not my favorite studies. Do I correct that? Do I add my favorite studies? I mean, my favorite studies are foundational studies in the field. I should put them up there. Do I? Well, you you wrote that equation, but you you didn't put the caveats that I think are important. Should I rock, walk up there and add the caveats? Or the actual vignette, vignette here the way you phrase that can be interpreted in a way that promotes misconceptions and alternative synonyms are available that. Yeah. So should I just change your word choice or you didn't use my favorite example. Should I walk up there and put my favorite example up there? I think finding where to stop makes the reality of what do I change on the board? Very difficult to navigate for a mentor teacher because it goes back to influencing how much autonomy does a student teacher have? They didn't use my examples. They didn't use my equation. They didn't cite my paper. So like aside from just factually wrong information, finding where to stop is very difficult in practice. 
I know that I wouldn't do what this person did, autonomously go to the whiteboard, erase it, and rewrite it. I would, for my classroom, model a dialogue where I asked a question to the teacher. Hey, you wrote this question this way. Um, how, what are the difference in implications if we wrote the question another way? And that is good for every single person in the room. That is good for every single person in the room. And it's a subtle difference, but it's still intervening. It, and it's intervening in a way that is, I am not authoritarianly, I like unilaterally changing the classroom experience because I'm the one with more authority. I'm inviting discourse, discussion, learning learning is individual, but learning is also social. Uh, teaching is individual and teaching is also social. And I'm inviting that discourse to a better place. So I still believe in the co-teaching is superior to mono-teaching. I believe in that. But that means the dialogue must be transparent for all people involved. In fact, this leads me to a note that I didn't know when I was going to make. But there is a fundamental flaw in the non-intervention policy. And the fundamental flaw in the non-intervention attitude is that the classroom is not a teacher-centered divine right authority. If you believe as a cooperating teacher that you cannot tread on the single monolithic authority of the teacher, what you're saying is that the classroom belongs to them. And that is not who the classroom belongs to. You, as the students, all have a stake of citizenship in that classroom. It is, should not belong to one person. That classroom does not belong to one person. So if you're training a teacher to be an authoritarian, divine rights, teacher-centered teacher, that, that's not correct. Or I believe it shouldn't be. I believe that is wrong. And so this, this crystallized culture is a teacher-centered culture where having dialogue, discourse, and challenging decisions and justifying decisions and explaining decisions and understanding what is happening in the classroom for all stakeholders is a pluralistic approach, which would be healthier for all of the students in the classroom. Make better mistakes. How was the beer? Gosh, so I struggled with the beer. I really did not enjoy my first class. Um, it felt like drinking vegetables. Like they exactly achieved what they said they set out to achieve. It is not spicy. I didn't experience it as spicy in any way. I experienced pepper flavors. I didn't get any of the cinnamon, not at all. It just felt like I was drinking a like a bell pepper is what it felt like to me. Uh, so if you have a reckless pour and then you actively choose to slurp what forms uh it that's a little spicy because i did ex experience the the deeper into i got it a little bit of warmth in my mouth sort of that slow burn that happens sometimes with spicy foods um but i actually did like it i did sm i did smell and taste some sweetness that i enjoyed uh but I also have tricked myself into enjoying spicy food for, for, for two decades now. So it's possible that my brain is just releasing some sympathy dopamine because there's some like pepper 
molecules involved. We're going to jump in again next month with finding the very best edge research that everybody can can apply to their practice. Are we really the very best? I mean, I do my, I do, I try to find the very best. I stand by that. Okay. What I was trying to tee up was if there's something you want us to be reading, we want to read it so we can make it as valuable as possible. We We have taken a reader suggestion several times in the past. So my dear audience, we care about what you think is important. So if you have research you think we should read, we want to hear it. So let us know on twopipeplc.com. Until next month discuss research and struggle well.